Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. I'm kicking off a new season with a look at an old food, one that possibly helped Neolithic people move into Northern Europe. You see, one of the great puzzles of human evolution is that although all of us obviously thrive on milk as babies, most adult humans are lactose intolerant. They can't digest milk which gives them all sorts of grief if they try. Well, Neolithic people were lactose intolerant too. Their DNA tells us that. But most people from Northern Europe can drink milk as adults, and indeed they probably have to, to get the calcium they need through the dark days of winter. So how did that happen? Well, maybe with the help of yogurt, which is naturally fermented milk. The fermentation converts the lactose, which causes the intolerance, to lactic acid. And there's evidence that people were eating yogurt as far back as 10,000 years ago. And the point is that yogurt gave Neolithic people the nutritional benefits of milk without any digestive distress. And there was a bonus for any individuals who, thanks to a mutation, were able to digest lactose. That's because there is still a little lactose left in yogurt enough to provide an extra nutritional boost to anyone who can digest it. And that may have been what allowed lactose tolerance to spread. So, anyway, that's the somewhat speculative deep background to yogurt. But as I learned from a new book, Yogurt, A Global History, the start of the modern yogurt era can be dated quite precisely to the 8th of June, 1904. That's the day on which Elie Mechnikov gave a public lecture on old age in Paris. Yogurt, he said, and specifically the bacteria that turn milk into yogurt, were the reason that there were so many people who lived to a hundred and more in Bulgaria. You see, the bacteria in question had recently been identified by a Bulgarian called Stamen Grigorov, who named it Lactobacillus bulgaricus in honour of the country. Machnikov's lecture that night in Paris kick-started a craze for yoghurt and lactobacilli that's going stronger than ever today and still letting lactose-intolerant people get the nutritional benefits of milk. As a prelude to our chat about yoghurt, I asked June Hirsch, who wrote Yogurt, a global history, to fill me in on Mechnikov. He was involved in studying bacteria, and he got the idea almost at the same time, and I think one has to wonder um, who sparked the other. Um, did, did one steal the other's thunder? If that's the case, then Mechnikov stole the thunder of Grigorov because he became the person associated with yogurt. But both men, nearly at the same time, in the very early 1900s, started to investigate why was it that the people who lived in the Bulgarian region were poor, they ate a peasant's diet, yet they were outliving most other people. What was it? What were they doing? What was their secret? 
um, Metrikoff began calling it the elixir of life. And he began publishing works that proposed that it was the yogurt that they were eating and most um, specifically the bacteria in yogurt that was causing these remarkable results of longevity. Grigorov, who was of Bulgarian descent, he's the one that began investigating most specifically the strains of bacteria that were present in Bulgarian yogurt. The two of them shared their information, and Metchnikov, he ran with it. He became almost simultaneously a revered scientist and a charlatan which is not an easy thing to do. He was believed by many. He was embraced by the masses. He began um, probably crossing the line when he lent his name, whether he did it intentionally or just because he was lax and didn't follow up on it. But there were lactobacillus pills and there were articles saying, if you want to live to 100, drink Metchnikoff's Elixir of Life. And he wrote a book called The Prolongation of Life. And in it, it was an optimistic view on how to increase your lifespan. And in it, he talked very specifically and almost exclusively about yogurt. Was it mostly a European phenomenon or did it get taken up in in America and elsewhere? I think the Europeans have been ahead of us on the curve on many of the um, what we would call food innovations. Yogurt was enjoyed in Europe well before it was enjoyed in America. As far as Mechnikov and, and Grigorov were concerned, people made yogurt and they made it in their homes mostly. Correct. Um, very few people do that now. I mean, I know you do, I do. But um, how did commercial yogurt get its start? So it, it, it took a long time. And again, it started in Europe well before. So when Mechnikov made this great leap and explain to people that yogurt was good for you, the Europeans embraced it and they began eating it with, with really with, um, robustly Americans, not so much. And if you look at some of the articles from the 1920s, America did not embrace it. Why? It didn't taste so good. They were saying things like if you could stand the taste try to eat it. If you don't mind eating something that tastes like it has spoiled a week ago, try yogurt. So it, it really was, was not gaining any traction. But that did not stop those in Europe from realizing that you could make the leap from producing it in small batches in your home using the same strains, using the same starter, using the same bacteria that had been you know, passed down from truly generation to generation. But it wasn't available to the average person who didn't have a clue. So now you have this food stuff that was touted and you didn't have a way for people to get it. Enter those people who had the vision, one of them being Isaac Carasso. He was a Sephardic uh, Jewish family. They were a Sephardic Jewish family who had been resettled in Greece uh, after the Inquisition. And in Greece, yogurt was something that people just ate routinely. 
And the Carrassos in the early 1900s, in 1912 specifically, made their way back from Greece to their homeland in uh, Spain, in Barcelona. And when they got there, Isaac brought with him the method of making yogurt. And he said, let me start to make it and sell it as a pharmaceutical product. And so he began making small batches. He then saw that it was catching on and that there was a commercial use for yogurt. So he began producing it in larger quantities, eventually moving their industry to France, where they settled, and he named the company Danone. Danone means little Daniel in, in Castilian, and that's where the name Danon yogurt comes from. Hang that, on. that was Americanizing it. You, you, you said his name was Isaac Carrasso. Yes, but he named it for his son, Daniel. I I'm see. sorry. <laughs> he named it for his son, Daniel, and Danone means little Daniel. So they moved it to France in the 1940s. The son, now Daniel, the namesake of the company, saw that it was no longer safe for French Jews in France. And he took that cue and moved his family to New York. And that's how Dan and Yogurt made its way across the pond and came from France into New York. So was it Danone when they got to the United States, which didn't like this sour taste of yogurt? Was it Danone that introduced sugar and fruit? No. So Danone yogurt remained relatively pure yogurt, really just having the basic ingredients of milk, bacteria, and the fermentation process. It really wasn't until you had some of the more newcomers, um, like Yoplait, which was a French concern, um, that they began flavoring the yogurt. And the most popular flavor is strawberry. It was then and it is today. And they're the ones who really changed the, the process of how yogurt tasted, adding fruit, some adding it fruit in the bottom, some adding it fruit that was already mixed in. And that now made it more palatable. And, and much sweeter. I mean, I can remember, dating myself again in England, I can remember ski yogurt actually being too sweet. Yes, and it's funny that you mentioned ski because ski in 1972, actually in, in England, they sold 150 million pots of yogurt. They had close to 50% of the share of yogurt sales in Europe. But yes, it became very sweet. And I think that those who, who really missed the purity of yogurt really lamented that fruit was now added and that it almost turned it into a sugary confection rather than a healthful food product. Yeah, I mean, even, even the kind of plain vanilla flavor was, to me, horribly sweet. Anyway, let's, let's leave that aside. Let's talk about <laughs> another, another change um, more recently, um, which is the rise of Greek yogurt. I, I was surprised. I came back from a holiday in Greece determined to make my own Greek yogurt, and I read up on it, and it's just strained. I mean, there's nothing, there's no extra process apart from now, getting rid of some of the liquid. Correct. It's, it's fascinating to think that this was an innovation that truly uh, launched yogurt, at least in the United States. Ulakaya, who was a Turkish-born uh, um, yogurt maker, 
acquired a plant in upstate New York, he wasn't even going to make yogurt. He was going to make feta cheese. He basically did exactly what you're saying. He took the yogurt and he strained it. Now, people in the Middle East have been straining yogurt for thousands of years in Israel, in Turkey, in the Middle East. But Ulakaya said, why don't I try to make it healthier? Let's get it back to where it was, to its healthy roots. And he did that by straining it. When you strain it, you do strain out the sugar. He did it in an industrial fashion. And he now sold under the name of Chobani yogurt. And that is truly what revolutionized yogurt, at least in the United States. It, it was the game changer. There was a huge fight between Chobani, the kind of the newcomer, and, and well, I call it Faj, but I don't, I don't know how you pronounce it in Greek, probably Faye. Um, it is. <laughs> um, but there was a huge fight between these two titans of Greek yogurt. What was that about? So basically, it really was about as to who would have the rights to calling Greek yogurt, Greek yogurt. And in, in some of the world, Greek yogurt is, can be called Greek by some. And in other countries, um, they could not call it Greek yogurt. So Fahe won the right to call it Greek yogurt in Britain. Ah. So they can call their yogurt in Britain authentic Greek yogurt, whereas Chobani can call it Greek yogurt in the United States. And so it's, it's just fascinating to think that Fahe, who truly, in, I, I'm not going to say they invented Greek yogurt, but they certainly popularized Greek yogurt long before anybody in the United States did, did not have the forethought, the vision to trademark that term. It's particularly strange because the Bulgarian yogurt, which is kind of where we started with, with Grigorov and, and Menchnikov, Bulgarian yogurt is in fact protected as a name, isn't it? It is because the grain of um, bacteria is protected by the Bulgarian government, yes. Leaving aside the sort of basic, what we've been talking about, yogurt, um, yogurt, as I used to call it. Um, what, about, what about the other fermented milks? I mean, f fermented milk is, is fairly widespread in many, many cultures, certainly in Europe. And I mean, I've, I've myself, I've, I've got kefir going. Um, there are others that I haven't tried, like skier. Um, how, how, are they, how are they changing? And what are they, in fact? So let me first make a distinction. Skier is yogurt. It's a yogurt that has its roots in um, more of the Scandinavian countries. That is a yogurt, a pure yogurt, that is made from skimmed milk. Very high in protein, very low in sugar, very low in fat. It's tart. It's thick. I, it happens to be my yogurt of choice. If you gave me a choice, I would eat skier over any of the other yogurts. I just like it's, it's, uh, it has a little bit of a, of a funky flavor to it. And it, it, you feel like you're eating the pure substance. Is it a traditional product? And were they, were they using the, the fat for butter and cream and things like that? Is that how it arose? I'm probably not a thousand percent knowledgeable if that was its origin, but I can tell you that 
they found that when the Vikings were on their long journeys, they had access to skimmed milk. So I'm going to assume that the fat was being churned and used for other substances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is marketed as a low-fat yogurt. So I am assuming that that fat in somebody's home was going into something else because you can't ferment out the fat. So first you have to skim the milk, then you make the yogurt. So that fat is going somewhere. And, And so what about kefir then? So kefir, it's not yogurt. If skir is a sibling of yogurt, then kefir is its cousin. It's a fermented yogurt-like product, but it is fermented from, and if you're fermenting yours and you know the grains, it is made from little grains that almost look like riced cauliflower, and you allow it to ferment, and it's an easy source of eating a ferment, you know, a fermented food and getting that, that intestinal bang for your buck by drinking it. Neolithic people were probably lactose intolerant and, and maybe fermented yogurt was something that helped them to get the benefit of milk. Um, mm-hmm. Southeast Asia, where the people are classically lactose intolerant, they, they, they can't drink milk, they, or they get very uh, upset stomachs and what have you if they drink milk. Mm-hmm. And yet yogurt and, uh, has, has completely taken off. I mean, India, it's always been traditional to have curd, but further, further east, um, China, Japan, yogurt has really taken off there. How did that happen? People in Southeast Asia who are discovering no different than the Neolithic man did, that if they eat yogurt because it has so much less pure lactose, they can tolerate it. And it is a way for them to get all of the amazing health benefits of milk, the calcium, the minerals, the vitamins, the protein, without having the indigestion. And that's why yogurt is catching on. So was, was there a pioneer um, Western company that started marketing yogurt into China, Japan? Honestly, I don't know of one. I know that the only part of China that really knew about yogurt back in the day was this small little area um, where the, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but where the Ugars reside. Mm-hmm. And they brought with them from the Silk Road, they brought with them the traditions of making yogurt. It wasn't until they began bringing it down and Beijing yogurt became a thing. And it has those iconic little pots with the blue paper and straws. And that became popular well before the any other countries migrated yogurt into the Asian culture. And that's really how it became popularized in China. Flash forward to the 2000s and people caught on and these large companies said, ah, huge market. Let's start marketing to the Asian culture. And, and they do. In the, in the book, you've got these stories about close connections, which I found fascinating, between China and Bulgaria based on yogurt. Tell me about that. There was a time where the Chinese people did not trust their um, milk and dairy supply because there was an awful incident that took place with baby formula. There were fatalities linked to the supply chain in China. So... The Chinese um, said, we need to get our milk from someplace else. And so they began looking for other places. A company began to 
realize that their yogurt, if they made it with Bulgarian strains, would be highly popular because it had an authenticity to it. Um, the company was called Bright Dairy. And they seized on this need for the Chinese people to feel good about what they were eating again. So they are the ones who discovered this town in Bulgaria, in the Rodopi Mountains, where you were able to get the true, authentic Bulgarian cultures that go back to the days of Stamen Grigorov and obviously centuries prior to that. And they made a deal with this Bulgarian community. They began um, marketing a product called Momchilvatsky. And it is a yogurt that is made in Bulgaria and marketed to the Chinese and Southeastern Asian market. Every year, there is a festival in this little town, this Manchovitsky, and they celebrate the Chinese culture and Chinese citizens come over, um, and I guess we're talking pre-pandemic times, and they would have this enormous yogurt festival where the two cultures come together. They actually said that many of the Bulgarians in this little town learned Chinese. Almost all of the signs in the town are in both Bulgarian and Chinese. And these two cultures come together and they celebrate Bulgarian yogurt. Incredible. <laughs> I know yogurt is associated with all sorts of health claims. Um, and and I don't really want to get into those. But one thing that intrigues me, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, is that the kind of claim you can make for the health-giving effects of yogurt vary between countries. You'd think that if yogurt has demonstrable effects on health, then you could say that anywhere. But it's not true. You, it's regulated what you can say about what yogurt is good for. Don't you find that a little bit odd? It is very confusing because there is no set standard. And the one thing I say to everyone is no matter what yogurt you buy, the one standard you can stick by is it has to have live and active cultures. If it does not, don't eat it, don't buy it. If that's not the first two ingredients, the milk source and the live and active cultures, it's junk. Don't buy it. June Hirsch, author of Yogurt, A Global History. And if you want to get a copy, Reaction Books is very kindly offering a discount to listeners. I'll put the details in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And I should add that Menchnikov is far better remembered in biological circles today as one of the two founders of the science of immunology. He and Paul Ehrlich shared a Nobel Prize in 1908 in recognition of their work on immunity. Would yogurt have taken off without Mechnikov? That's one of those imponderables. All I know is I'm glad it did. I love the stuff. I'll share more details at eatthispodcast.com and in my various social circles, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Eat This Podcast. And a reminder, if you're not already signed up for the newsletter, 
you can do so at the website and it'll bring you various bits and bobs in between news of each new episode. I've got some good things lined up for this coming season. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and this podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.